Amen. Well, good morning to you all. It's good to see you. Go ahead and have a seat and get comfortable. Amen. Uh, Enter a tree. There's a sign-up sheet right out back there, and we need to kind of get closer to finalizing that. Um, we had signed up for 30 slots, but we have 38 names on the list, so we reserved 10 more slots, but if we're going to get 10 more and go to 50, we've got to do that by the end of January, so we pretty much have to do that this Sunday or next. So please, if you're thinking about going, uh, get on there as quickly as possible. Who's going? Everyone's going, right? Oh, good. That was awesome. That was great. So I was, I was afraid I was going to have to put your picture on the screen or something like that. This guy did not sign up for the retreat. Uh, don't be like him. Uh, anyway, there's 20-some-odd churches coming to this, like 400 men going to be there. And they've asked uh, Pastor Mike to lead worship for the whole thing. So you know it's going to be good. The women want to go. They can't go, but they want to go. And uh, so you want to get on there after church this Sunday because I think we may need a few slots. And so that would really help us out. Mark chapter 6 this morning. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels with the exception of the resurrection. What that means is that when the Lord considered the assembly of his word, he figured that any time that any person was going to read any of the four Gospels, then surely they would come into contact with this particular miracle. And as a Christian, that gets my attention. It means there's something about this that we need to soak in and grasp and learn that God has a lesson for us this morning. Now, in part, what you need to understand going into this is that at this point in the public ministry of Jesus Christ is he is entering, about to enter into his last year of public ministry, okay? Jesus' ministry divides up kind of neatly into three sort of years, sort of, so to speak, three plus years, but three separate one-year segments. There's the first year, which is more really Jesus in obscurity. The second year, year and a half, we see a rise in popularity. And then in this last year that he's about to head into, we see hostility. And a growing hostility we're going to see against the Lord Jesus Christ that will ultimately culminate in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, this is not just contextual background, technical kind of information that the preacher gives to cover his basis or you know where we're coming from, chronologically speaking. It is utterly vital to your understanding of the take-home, of the application for this text and the things that we're going to learn here this morning. Because a great change begins to take place in Jesus' ministry. And you could sort of like mark in your Bibles from here forward that everything sort of pivots at this point, beginning with this miracle right here. Because what we're going to see the Lord Jesus do for the most part going forward is he's going to take most of his attention away from the crowds and away from the religious leaders, away from the multitudes, more and more. He's still going to spend some time with the crowds. He's still going to do some miracles. But he's going to spend more and more of his focus and his time on the 12 instead. And again, that gets my attention. Keep that in mind as we look at this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. 
you know, store it somewhere in your short-term memory so that when we wrap up today, you get where I'm going. It's about the 12. It's about the 12. It's about the 12. Okay? Keep that in mind as you look through this text and what Jesus is working towards as we wrap up here and as we go today. Now, the context is, well, there's a lot going on. You know, we know from last week's study that John the Baptist was murdered by Herod. And you have to think that that would have hit the disciples hard. You know, we know it even hit Jesus hard. So, on one sense, maybe they're troubled and shooken up a little bit by that news. In another sense, they're coming off a spiritual high in some ways. Because at the beginning of Mark 6, Jesus had sent the 12 out on their own on a missions trip for the very first time. And they did some of the very same things, presumably, that Jesus had done, that they had seen Jesus do. They preached the word. They cast out demons. They cured. They healed people. Again, they replicated the very things that Jesus had done. And so now it's time to come on back. This is how discipleship works. You know, you kind of send them out a little bit, then you kind of come on back and we have a little Q&A, we have a little time to debrief and talk things over, you know, and that we go a little deeper in that kind of sense, and that's exactly where we begin here, right in the middle of the chapter, in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Now, did you notice anything different here for the first time in the book of Mark? Did you notice anything? This will be like children's ministry. I'll throw you a Jolly Rancher if you get it right. All right, I wouldn't raise my hand either. Okay, this is the first time that Mark identifies the 12 as apostles instead of what he always designates them as, which is disciples. Why? Because he sent them out. Apostle means sent one. Disciple means student or learner. And the implication for us, for you and I as Christians, is at every point in our walk with God, we've got to graduate, if you will, from being merely a student, merely a learner of Christ, to being a sent one, to being sent out by Christ, commissioned by Christ. When you think about the emphasis of the book of Mark, the angle of which he's writing from, it's clear Mark is one that portrays Jesus as constantly on the move, always about the Father's business. So nobody can really be a true student of Jesus and study him and want to learn about him and then try to implement him into your life without being a sent one at some point. You're a learner, you're a disciple, then at some point you go, well, if I want to be Christ-like, then I have to be sent commissioned by God. I got to use my gifts, you know, in conjunction with his call upon my life. I got to share the word, the very things that the disciples have been doing. Just studying the life and the ministry of Jesus is not the end game in mind that God has for you and I. We're to be sent out around the world, across the street, or even sent out in a sense, commissioned by God here, even within the local church. And it's my experience that disciples cannot remain merely disciples at some point without being sent out, without becoming stagnant or stale over time, 
because they're not fulfilling that great call or purpose that God has on their life. And God had a grand purpose, we know, in mind for these apostles. They were never going to be just disciples. And he knew that. So he is discipling them unto apostleship so that they could be sent ones. How does he do that? Well, he does that by teaching them lessons. And one of them we're going to see in our text this morning, and that's the big picture. He also does that by giving them things to do, by giving them authority, by giving them responsibility. Oftentimes, God calls us to something that stretches us a little bit beyond what we would see ourselves doing naturally without him, and that sort of brings us along again in terms of our commissioning and his call to stretch us. And then finally, he also spends time with them as well. Real intimate kind of time, like a men's retreat here. And that's exactly what he sort of organized here. Verse 31 says, And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. So they get in this boat with Jesus. He says, you guys got to come aside for a little while. You need some rest. I like in the King James that it's come apart. Come apart for a little while. Because Jesus knows that these guys need some time apart from the crowds, from the ministry. Time aside with him to be recharged and to be refreshed in him. It was the old-time pastor, Vance Havner, who once said, if you don't every once in a while come apart, then you might eventually fall apart. And that's a good word. The great commentator, Warren Wearsby, one time was challenged by someone in his church body when he let it be known that he was headed out on vacation. And someone came up to him, up to him afterwards and says, the devil doesn't go on vacation. And to which he thought, but didn't say out loud, but thought, well, he probably would if he could go with you. But he didn't say that. <laughs> I was challenged one time when I talked about this idea of the need to get a break every once in a while. And everyone here who enjoys a little R&R can say amen in your heart to just kind of go, yeah, this is good, that we do this every once in a while. But I was challenged with the notion that Jesus Christ might take a vacation. And I probably didn't say it right, because it's not like I'm saying they went to Club Med or something like that. What I'm saying is that he got away purposefully with his guys for some time, for some downtime, to come together, fellowship, things that we all need. It's been said that the bow that is always bent will soon cease to shoot straight. I understand that. When God created the world, he created it in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, but not because he was tired. He did it as a pattern for you and I, as an example of what we need because we're purely flesh and bones. That's how Warren Wiersbe responded to that person in his church. <laughs> I'm not a spirit like the devil. I got to drag around these bones and this flesh. And so every once in a while, I need to rest. See, and that's why, and you heard me say before, but I'll say it again. That's why I don't think really Christians ever burn out. I don't really believe that people burn out in ministry. But I do think some people burn up in ministry because maybe they have too many irons in the fire, so to speak. They got a lot going on. Now, I'm not saying that we're to balance, okay? I don't like that word as it relates to God. 
I mean, just try saying it to God sometime. God, I need you to find some balance between you and the rest of my life. It doesn't fly. It doesn't really work. Just think about what you're saying. So I don't really believe it's about balance. I believe it's about prioritization. I believe when you know what it is that God has called you to, the extent, no more, no less, of what he's called you to do, you can put your head down and go 100%. So if God says you're called to work here at this job, and then you come home and you love on your wife and your kids and you have dinner together and then you hang out afterwards as a family and you put your kids to bed and then you pray for them. You do your devotion with your wife and you, you serve in the local church body on work day yesterday or you do the children's ministry or you're a prayer warrior or you share with your next door neighbor. When you identified what those things are, it could be a list of two things, three things, whatever it is, no more, no less. Then you could say, no, then that is 100% what I'm supposed to do for God. So often we can be distracted by doing so many things that we're really not doing anything very well. We live in a multitasking society. It's good in some ways, can be problematic in others because there's always work that can be done. You ever notice that? Work never ends. It never will end. In fact, today they have websites where like at two in the morning our time, you can be witnessing to someone at like 3.30 in the afternoon in India. See, so from that vantage point, you know, 24 hours a day, every single day, throughout the whole year, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, we can be doing something. But if we do that, we might just fall apart. And we might just fall apart exactly when and in exactly where, the particular area in which God needs us to be strong because take a look again back to the text just as soon as these guys come apart come aside for a break they're like hey lord how long is this vacation going to be we got a week you know sabbath to sabbath do we get a long weekend because monday's a day off I mean, how long is this going to be and actually it's going to be about as long as it takes to go from one uh, docking point of the sea of galilee to another that's just a a few hours, I would guess. It says, verse uh, 33, not much of a break here. The multitudes, it says, saw them departing. And many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. So if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, some of you have been there, this will make more sense. But if you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, in the northeast sort of tip, from your perspective, it would be up here. The northeastern tip is Jesus's headquarters, Capernaum. I wish we had PowerPoint, but we have me instead. So here's Capernaum right here. And where they were going, one other gospel tells us they were going to the northwest tip, just a few miles across to Bethsaida, where Philip was from. At that point, it's kind of a narrow part of the sea. You can apparently see all the way across the water. So what's happening here is, well, the crowd sees Jesus. They recognize Jesus. Maybe they also recognize the disciples as well. Remember, they had just been on missions trips around the valley there in the Galilean region themselves. So they recognize him and they begin to run around the shore. There's only two ways to get around the Sea of Galilee in that day. You get in a boat or you run around the shore. And that's what they begin to do, hoping that they can get to wherever Jesus and the guys are going before they get there first. Can you imagine that scene? I mean, if you're in the boat, you're like, what are those people doing? Where are they going? And they're running around to get to where you are. You ever seen a crowd like that running? That's a big crowd. Let's put it into perspective. Verse 44 of this chapter tells us it's 5,000 men. 
But Matthew's gospel tells us that doesn't count women and children. So it could be 10, 15, 20,000 people running around. It's like the shark tank where the sharks play or the warriors where they play. It's a stadium that big of people running around the shore to beat Jesus and the guys to the spot that they're going. And they did. It says they ended in verse 33, they arrived before them and came out together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude. Now, if I was going on vacation and I just got started and I saw a great multitude, I'd be like, you got to be kidding me. But Jesus saw a great multitude, and that's because I don't love you guys. Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> just want to throw that in there. Uh, Jesus, when he saw the multitude, was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. And the word there for compassion means it's something that he felt like in the pit of his stomach, like deep down in his gut. You know what that's like, right? It's like butterflies. You know, when you're really feeling something, sometimes like if you're really nervous, like what if I was this morning to like at random call one of you up here with me to explain exactly what this verse means? Let's try that real quick this morning. I'm just going to pick just one of you at random here. All right, so I'm bluffing. I'm just kidding. But did you feel that nervous energy for a minute when you thought maybe I might be picking you? Okay. So I'm not going to pick anyone. I'll never have you come up here if you don't want to. But that's that feeling. If you've ever asked someone to the prom before, okay, if you've ever confronted a loved one before, if you've ever been put on the spot before, that's that kind of energy. What, what they would describe as an emotion of the heart, or what we would describe as an emotion of the heart, they would describe as an emotion of the stomach, in the guts. They would say, I'm moved in my guts. My, my bowels are moved. Now, that means something different today than it did for them. But what that meant for them was a very intense kind of emotion that they felt. So listen, okay? When Jesus, when he looks out at the crowd, when he looks out at the crowd, what he thinks about, what he has, is he has compassion, an intense emotion for those folks when he sees them. Now, we don't know that the disciples looked at them the same way. In fact, we're pretty sure they did not. We'll see that in a minute. He sees them, and he has this compassion on them. You think about Jesus' compassion. I think that's one of the more underrated traits of Jesus. We talk a lot about Jesus, and we attribute many things to him. But he was a Messiah of compassion. Remember the scene when Jesus, after Lazarus died, Jesus was close friends with Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha. Lazarus died. He shows up to Bethany about four days later. And even Mary of all people, you know, she was calm and quiet. She was the one who always sat at the Lord's feet. And she kind of went out, almost challenged him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So he went with them to where they had buried Lazarus. And it was an emotional scene. I mean, of course, Lazarus had died. The Bible says that Jesus groaned in the spirit and was troubled himself, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He was troubled anyway. That's where it says Jesus wept. That's the first Bible verse he probably uh, memorized. Jesus wept. It's a tough one. Jesus wept in that particular instance because he has compassion. He looked around. You could be at a funeral. And you could be at a funeral for someone that you didn't even know that well, but because you see other people moved and emotional and broken up, people that you love, then it gets to you too. It has an impact on you too. 
Maybe also Jesus is standing there and he's just once again considering the effects of sin and death that it's had on this world. And so he wept in compassion. I can think of another time um, on Palm Sunday. We could think of many times, but Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Remember when Jesus, you know, he came in. It was supposed to be triumphal, uh, but the people didn't know about it. It was something that Daniel, the prophet, had prophesied hundreds of years before, but they weren't really ready for it. Jesus went out and he wept over Jerusalem. He looked out over the city and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. And that word wept there means wailed. He wailed over the city. He had such great compassion. And in part because he knew that their desire for a political Messiah had blinded them to their true Messiah. And so the result was the siege of Jerusalem 40 years later and the ransacking of the temple, which he predicted, by the way. He's an omniscient, all-knowing God. And he weeps audibly. He weeps visibly because he could see 70 AD with clarity. And similarly, he can see into your troubled or confused or questioning heart this morning as well. And he has compassion very specifically on you and I today as well. Now, don't miss this because this is a big key here. It's not the key, but it's a big key. What is the first thing when Jesus sees the folks and he has compassion on them, what is the first thing that he does? The first thing it says, look what we just read, end of verse 34, it says, so he began to teach them many things. He didn't first say, wow, I have great compassion on this crowd. Maybe I should get them some food. He doesn't at first do that. The number one priority is I'm going to teach them many things. That's what he did to be compassionate. I don't care what anyone tells you to the contrary. Listen, what anyone tells you to the contrary, the most compassionate thing that you can do for people is to tell them how to get to heaven. You can't convince me otherwise. That's the most compassionate thing. So it's not like he's not going to feed them at some point, but the fact is they need to be fed spiritually first. That's what we need to do. It won't always be pleasant. It won't always be a lot of fun. Sometimes they might mock us or make us look bad, but it is the most compassionate thing that we can do for the multitudes, for people. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a time and a place also to minister to people practically as well, and that's what we're going to see here in just a few minutes. But first we're told, verse 35, when the day was now far spent. So keep in mind, the disciples are pretty tired. They're spent. <laughs> Literally, it's getting later in the day, probably like three to five o'clock in the afternoon. The sun's about to go down and it says, his disciples, and they're back to being disciples again. Just thought I'd point that out because they're gonna learn a lesson here. So his disciples came to him and said, this is funny, right? You can just picture the disciples coming to Jesus, God, right? And saying, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Like they, he didn't know that already. Uh, you ever done that before? Like kind of clue in the Lord on something? You're thinking maybe he doesn't know already? Just me, all right, fine. <laughs> I don't have to cops anything. So that's what they basically are telling him. You know, just in case he's lost sight of the obvious, that it's getting darker outside. And not only that, they tell him what to do. Verse 36, send them away. <laughs> that they might go into the surrounding country 
and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. All right, so they've gone beyond like pointing out the obvious and now they're going to be Jesus's counselor here, okay? That's pretty funny. You ever given God counsel before? <laughs> no, the Bible says he's a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. He ought to be counseling us. He really doesn't need my counsel. But we do. We try sometimes. I know why I have. You ever done it? Just come on, tell the truth. You, you try to counsel God before? He, I want you to know, he values that counsel tremendously. He really does. No, he, he actually he doesn't need that counsel from us. He's God. And that's what they're doing here. They're pointing out these things to him. They're saying, look, we've got we to gotta work this out. There's a situation at hand. Oh, yeah, Joe Shoup, that's a guy that I need around because he let me know it was dark outside and the multitudes have nothing to eat. Stay close to me, Shoup. I mean, where am I going to find someone like you? Point out these kinds of things. But he answered, verse 37, and said to them, you give them something to eat. That's kind of funny because he knew that they didn't have anything. He knew that they really weren't able to do what he's asking them to do. And it's often, by the way, one of the things that we're looking at this morning, it's often those kinds of situations that you and I need to be in where we realize just how feeble we are and just how much we need him. When he allows us to do something that when we first look at it, we go, what in the world are we supposed to do? But here's our tendency, just like the disciples. You can only imagine they're huddling up, putting a plan together, got a calculator out, punching some numbers, thinking, you know, how are we going to do this? And it kind of makes me laugh in some ways, because here I am teaching this to you, right? And then Tuesday, when I come into the office, and we start dealing with church business, I'll call the brain trust together, and we'll start making a plan and calculating and doing these kinds of things, because this is what we do. Thinking about how we can impact things, how we can change things, how we can affect it in and of our own strength. That's exactly what they're trying to do. It says, and they said to him, end of verse 37, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, I'm not going to blame this all on Philip, but we know from John's gospel that it is Philip who's the one who tells him this. 200 denarii worth of bread, at least we're going to need. Philip is the accountant in the group, or at least he's the mathematician in the group. He looks out at the crowd, maybe he starts counting the people, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, five rows, 10 layers, how is that, about 5,000 people, half of them are married, average household, 3.6 kids in Jerusalem, I say about 14, 15,000 people, something like that. This is what Philip is doing. He does this calculation, he's like, you're going to need at least 200 denarii worth of bread, I'm thinking, and even that, I don't know if it's going to get the job done. Now, a denarii was a day's wage for a blue-collar laborer in that day. Okay, so today, what is it? In today's dollars, eight, nine bucks an hour. Maybe soon 15, who knows? We'll see. But eight, nine bucks an hour, sort of the minimum wage, right? Now, you take that number, and you look at, you know, 200 days wages. 200 days wages. So $9 an hour times eight hours in a work week times 200 days. It's 14400 A buck, I guess, for each person in the crowd. And Philip goes, I did the math. It doesn't compute. We don't have it. There's nothing we can do for these people. And Philip has a problem. It's no different than the rest of the disciples or you and I. 
But Philip has a problem, which is he has the tendency to analyze everything except the power of God. He likes to make calculations, but he forgets to plug the Lord into his calculations. And by the way, I think in a sense, that's exactly what Jesus wanted, to kind of allow them to squirm a little bit. Not because he's cruel or mean or anything along those lines, because he's quickly gonna come to the rescue, okay? But allow them to scramble to try and find a solution on their own without going to him, because that's what we do. And he sometimes said, okay, go ahead, Joe, try to figure this out, go ahead. You know, and he kind of sits back, maybe gets a little bit of a chuckle at my expense when I try, you know, from his disposition to do this without him when the answer needs to involve him in the mix. And that's what they begin to do. And he's going to wait, in a way here, to perform the miracle until they're totally baffled and are like, there's nothing we can do. Exactly. There is nothing you can do. So now he jumps in, verse 38. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Now, again, we know where they got those loaves from. From a lad, the book of John says, a small, a young boy. Now, I'm speculating here, but my belief is he's not with his parents, or else why does he have the lunch and not them? And why does he have food and they not have food? So this young boy wakes up in the morning. He's about to run out the house. His mom's like, where do you think you're going, young man? Oh, well, that rabbi's in town. I want to go check him out. Okay, brush your teeth, do your chores. Oh, and I got you a box lunch right here. Five loaves and two fish. Imagine when he came home that day. Mom, you never guess what happened. I met him with the rabbi. And he multiplied the food and 15, 20,000 people were there and they all ate. Yeah, Timmy, what I tell you about making up these stories, and the, that's the last time I send you out to that rabbi ever again. You can only imagine her response to that kind of thing. If she only knew that she was packing a lunch for this many people, well, she really wasn't, though, was she? Also, that young boy is a reminder, too, though, right? How just a small boy, really not much to offer, placed in a spot in the right timing with God's involvement, and God can do great things just through this small boy. But the disciples, they were not really believing at this point. They weren't as hopeful. We know that it was Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, who came back to Jesus to report the findings. But this is what he said. Mark just says five and two fish. But this is what Andrew said. Andrew said, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But then he added, but what are they among so many? So it's almost like he had a flickering of faith for like a moment, but even as the words are beginning to come out of his mouth, he's like, we found um, five loaves and two fish, and why does that even matter? Why am I even telling you this? Because he realized in the face of five, 10, 15, 20,000 people, how dumb that would have sounded. Oh, we got five loaves and two fish. Go ahead, Jesus, what are you going to do with this? Let's go find more. And so he's like, yeah, we found this, but. And that is, I think, another sort of parallel for us is we, we consider our own relationships with God, and quite often, even knowing what we know about God, we look at the situation around us and we go, yeah, but. I would go do this for the Lord, or this sounds like a good idea. Yeah, but I, I don't know. Maybe this will happen. Maybe that will happen. I mean, how easy we can step out in faith 
and then begin to question ourselves with, yeah, but. We have five loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Well, verse 39, then he, being Jesus, commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. One other side note, I think here, that is vital in understanding our role as disciples of Jesus Christ is notice here in this particular miracle that the disciples are not asked to multiply anything. You understand? Jesus is the one who does the multiplying. All they do is distribute. Okay? As Christians, we're not in the manufacturing business. We're in the distribution business. Okay? We only can hand out to others what we first receive from Jesus Christ. Now, that implies something, if you're with me this morning, right? That implies that we must be active about receiving from Jesus Christ. Because that's what we have to give to the multitudes. It'd be like a UPS truck driver going out on deliveries with nothing in his truck. It doesn't do him any good. The Bible says the hardworking farmer must first partake of the crop. One of my favorites if I expect to share with others, then I must first be fed by the Lord. And that's the idea. I don't have to multiply. I don't have to do anything miraculous. But we have to be faithful to distribute. And when we do that, again, this is a spiritual lesson, a spiritual parallel. When we do that, then we can be sure that God will work his purposes. And the same kind of goal can be accomplished in and through our lives as well. It says, verse 42, so they all ate and were filled. And the word filled there means glutted. Like where we get the word gluttony. Like Thanksgiving feast kind of glutted. Like loosen your belt underneath the table kind of glutted. Like I can't breathe, I ate too much kind of glutted. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. That's the kind of glutted. They are stuffed, they are full, which started as a lunch pail. And they are full from that. Amazing. They're so full, verse 43, that it says, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. One basket for each befuddled disciple. Verse 44, now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Now give me just a few minutes as we close this morning to kind of consider a couple things in terms of what we can draw from this particular text in terms of a lesson for us. I think for me, the great thing about this miracle, any miracle that Jesus did, in part he did it to authenticate his claims, that he was God, that he was the Son of God, that he was the chosen Messiah to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself. No question about that. But this miracle also is a miracle with a message. And it's a miracle with a message, particularly and specifically for disciples. So that would include you and I. And I think it's interesting especially to note that the reaction of the crowd is never mentioned in any of the four Gospels. You ever thought about that? The reaction of the crowd is never mentioned. And the reason that the reaction of the crowd is never mentioned is because 
It's not about the crowd. Remember I told you earlier to be thinking it's about the disciples, it's about the disciples. It's not really supremely about the crowd. He wanted to feed the crowd, don't get me wrong. He wanted to uh, take care of their physical need. But the big thing that's happening here is not that Jesus is able to take five loaves and two fish and multiply them. That's not a big thing for him. If you go back, you know, look, when the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, he fed them every day with nothing for years, and there was millions of them. So it's not really a big thing for him. The big thing is the lesson that he's trying to drive home to the disciples. And that lesson is basically this. What is it that you, what is it that we do when we're faced with a situation in our lives that from our perspective seems impossible? Because every single one of us as Christians, as you attempt to live a life of obedience to his call that he's placed upon your lives, are going to find yourselves from time to time smack dab in the middle of the impossible. Where our resources, our finances, our ideas seem wholly insufficient to us for whatever it is that God is asking of us. And this text here teaches us what it is that we're to do in that situation. And it may not be as profound as you want it to be, but it's pretty simple. You take your five loaves and your two fishes, you hand them to the Lord Jesus, you pray and you say, okay, God, what do you want to do? What can you do? What's your plan here in this situation? As little as that may seem, as small as that may seem, that's exactly what we're called to do. And then to trust him for the miracle, trust him to do what we think is impossible, trust him to do what is needed in bringing glory to his name in that given situation. You look at virtually every character of the Bible that was called by God, and when God called them in the Bible, almost without exception, their initial reaction each and every time was one of like awe, and are you sure? <laughs> you sure you picked the right person for this task? Because they were quickly thinking about how inadequate they were with their own resources or lack thereof. You think about Moses. Moses is like, no, you don't understand. I don't talk very well. I can't be the mouthpiece for God. I stutter. And what about my past? You know about my past, God. Everything out of his mouth was an excuse. And the prophet Jeremiah, he said, but I am but a youth. You think the nation's going to listen to me when I'm just a kid? That was his excuse. How about Gideon? When the angel of the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate, when he came to Gideon, Gideon said, look, my clan is the least in our tribe, and I am the least in my father's house. Or how about King David? Even King David, who had some confidence as a young man, but even he said, Lord, who am I? A couple times, who am I that you would use me to defend the entire nation? And on and on and on it goes all the way up until our day into your life and mine, where I think most of you, if you're anything like me, think similarly. When God has called you to something, he's commissioned you for something, you look at it and immediately you're confronted with everything you can't do, with all of the things that seem like is unrealistic for you to do in your own strength. All of the reasons why that you can count up that would prevent you from doing the things that God would ask of you. You're thinking about maybe some of those things right now. 
And those are exactly the very reasons, those reasons that you have why you can't do what you feel like God's calling you to do, exactly why God's calling you. It's exactly in those things where he wants to bridge the gap, and it's exactly in those things where he wants to show you, where he wants to teach you that lesson that he's able to do that in spite of you, through you. Now you say probably from your perspective, you go, well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor. You really have no idea what I'm going through this morning, and that's true. That's true, I understand. You're like, hey, you don't know what it's like to try and raise, you know, children, godly children, in a world like this. You know what it's like anymore to work in the secular world. You get to work here at church. I'm trying to manage two jobs in a secular world, Pastor. You don't know what that's like. You don't know what it's like to be stuck in a relationship. And the Bible tells me I have no out in that relationship, and I have to be married to this person. You're right. I don't know anything about that. You can ask my wife about that, and she can tell you about that. <laughs> I don't know anything about that kind of thing. But here's what I do know. And I know all the pastors would say the same thing, and everybody, everybody I know here. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're struggling, whatever it is that's impossible in your life right now, we're all called as a family to kind of go through some of those things together. And daunting they may be, I agree, some of them, but no less daunting anybody else's plight from their perspective. Oh, uh, yeah, well, you're, you get to be a pastor. That's what your dream job probably, yeah. But that doesn't make it any less helpless from my perspective to do anything. Trust me. We go up there, Sunday mornings, small group, basically the worship team, a few pastors, we pray, and every time, I mean, we know what we can do, but that is so insufficient for people walking through the doors. Trust me, we're like praying, God, we got five loaves and two fishes here. It's about all we can really offer, and you're the only one who knows what each person is coming with and what their need is. You're the only one who knows what's going on in their hearts. You're the only one that knows the spiritual warfare that they're dealing with. You're the only one that knows the trials and the difficulties that they're going through in their lives. You're the only one who knows the unsaved. I can't save anyone. Are you kidding? Look, at that's the main thing right there. If the pastor's number one job is called by God to help lead people to Christ, I can't think of anything I'm more inadequate to do than lead people to Christ. There's nothing I feel more helpless to do than to lead people to Jesus Christ. It's the hardest thing in the world. You can plead with them and plead with them and you can tell them the whole Bible and line up the prophecies and God's got to change their heart. There's nothing we can do about that. We have baptisms and people get baptized. Not a single person raised their hand to receive Christ. Like, well, what happened? I don't know. One of you read them to the Lord or something. Maybe they were worshiping a song. They heard it in the card, and then they broke down in tears and gave their life to God. They went home that night, said a prayer, and then God met them where they were at. And he just does that. But it's not like we walk in here and go, oh, we're going to save people this morning. It doesn't work that way. It's very hard. And so, you know, if you're stuck if you're in an impossible, from your perspective, situation this morning, even though you know better as a Christian, maybe, maybe you've begun, like the disciples, to begin sort of plotting, strategizing, thinking how you're going to do this in your own strength. You know, even being the Christian that you are, you've been walking with God for some time, your first reaction is, all right, let's get a plan. Let's do some calculations. 
we can move money from this account over to that account. I'll get a job on the weekends, and you know, we'll get a babysitter for this. And you can start doing all of those kinds of things. And when we're doing that, what are we doing? We're forgetting the resource that we have in God. When Jesus asked the disciples, what do you have? They said, we have five loaves and two fishes. But that's not what they had. They had five loaves and two fishes and the creator of the universe. That's all. Five loaves, two fishes, and the creator of the universe. That was all they had at their disposal at that time, okay? And they had a history with this Messiah who had cured the incurable, he had touched the untouchable, he had raised a little girl from the dead as we saw, miracle after miracle after miracle, and instantly what do they do when confronted with an impossible situation? They resort to what they can do, what their skill set is, their limitations, their resources, whatever the case may be, instead of going straight to him, especially in light of the fact that it was impossible. And we're prone to the same. Prone to the exact same thing. Now, Keep this in mind, okay, as we wrap up this morning. There is a sense in which you are not just anyone in Christ. I'm not saying that as a Christian we are better than other people, intrinsically speaking, okay? But in a sense, we are not limited the way the rest of the world is limited. Our resources are not tapped out in the way the rest of the world's resources are tapped out. You and I, as Christians, we have, because we are Christians, we have a resource they know nothing of and don't have access to. And that is our relationship with God. And God is real. And Jesus is real. And heaven, where we're going, is real. And his promises are always true. And the Holy Spirit is real. And his power inside of us that he wants to work through our lives is very real. And we know that to be true. But sometimes we act like we don't have access to that by the way we respond in trying to do things on our own. So the next time that that happens, when you're faced with the impossible and you know it's impossible, then just kind of sit down, settle down, go to God, offer him what you can. Lord, I just got five loaves and two fish, but I know one thing to be true. I have a relationship with you in whom all things are possible. Lord, we do. We thank you. We praise you.